Okay, if I could grab your attention back to the front. Come on, 35 minutes. Okay, good morning, Gateway. So good to be with you this morning. I've set myself a timer this morning, so I'm very intentional about making us get home for lunch. And for those who don't know me, my name is Liam. I'm part of the leadership team here at 502. I'm married to Prisca. And there's something you need to know about the passage we are doing this morning. It's Psalm 91. So if you don't want to grab a Bible, you've had a chance to get one, it will be behind me on the screen as well. But there's something about Psalm 91 which you need to know which is that my wife Prisca has deemed this to be her favorite psalm and one of her favorite passages in the entire Bible. So you'll imagine my joy when I get handed this text, run it by Prisca, and of course she says the words to me, please don't embarrass me before I get up this morning. So if this doesn't go well, I think we need some like strictly paddles that Prisca can hold up to say that it's not been a 10 out of 10. Um, but I'm sure I'm... Prisca's not the only one that loves Psalm 91. It is a rich psalm. It is a beautiful psalm. There's so much in it for us that will do us good, but it's also a potentially, potentially hazardous psalm. We can read it in different ways. And so we're really going to unpack the psalm this morning um, and have some simple takeaways for you. But I want to get straight into reading it. So Psalm 91, if you turn to it there, as I said, it will be behind me as well. And I'll read this through for us. Not too long. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress and God, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So isn't that a beautiful psalm? I don't know whether this is the first time you've just read Psalm 91 all the way through, or whether this is the hundredth time. Better not to ask Prisca how many times she's read it, hopefully a few thousand. But this psalm is so easily captivating to us, and there is so much truth, so much promise packed into it, that quite rightly, it's one of the most memorable parts of Scripture that we think about when we come to the Bible. Now, you may have noticed there's no obvious author given. So some people think, ah, it must be written by David because you've got words like stronghold, you've got arrows, you've got rampart, lots of battle analogy and vocabulary that makes you think, ah, this is David speaking from a guy who knows. He's been in battle. He's been in wars. But other people reckon it's Moses. If you take the verses that we're going to really unpack later, where it talks about coming under the wings of a bird, the feathers of God, that is more 
Moses' language that he used in the Old Testament in one of his famous speeches. So whoever the author is, I'll leave that up to you. But what we can't deny is that this is a powerful and beautiful psalm. There is so much in it for us. But at the same time, we can't ignore this morning the apparently problematic parts of this psalm which I'm sure many of you already know, but if you've not read it, and that was your first reading, you may think, hang on a minute, that's very interesting language. It kind of sounds like if I put my faith in God, then I can go on and live a chanceless life, that I'm going to be covered, I can do what I want, I'm almost invincible in this life. Wow, what a day, what a deal to be a Christian. So what do we do with that? Because it sounds like Suffering, no, not for me, I'm a Christian. Happy days, thank you very much. Let's move on to another preach. But the problem is that you and I both know, I assume we we all know, that life is not like that, is it? That we leave these doors, we go into our normal work routine, we go back to our families, we go back for Sunday lunch, we think about the bills, we think about relationships, we think about our health, we look at the news, and actually life is not like this at all. I'm not sure many of us would walk out of here thinking we have a blanket protection over us that means we can do whatever we want this week and we will be completely fine and get away scot-free. So the problem is, things happen to good people, things happen to bad people in our eyes. There is no monopoly on what suffering is or who deserves it and who doesn't. Things just happen in life that are outside of our control. So how do we actually get our heads around this in Psalm 91 and what it appears to say to us? Well, there's three things I'd I'd like to show us this morning that hopefully is going to iron this out, take any confusion that we have, and allow us to really apply this scripture in the way that it was intended. So three points I'd like to make this morning. The first one is how we can make sense of tricky themes. Now, this is a tricky theme. This isn't a straightforward read for us. And I think this is a really good discipline in our Bible reading to think, right, I'm reading this at face value. How can I ensure that what I'm reading and the way I take that and apply it to my life is actually what was intended by the writer and not something that I'm reading into the text? So we're going to have a a quick look at that. Tricky themes, how do we navigate? Number two, how we can sometimes misuse Scripture. Again, it's so easy for us to read Scripture, not contextualize it, borrow what we want, read our own lens over the top, and actually we've misunderstood then potentially the character of God, what it means to be a child of God, how we reckon with suffering, all of these big questions. And finally, we're going to look at how God really is our refuge, because that is the pattern of this series, that's what we've been looking at in recent weeks, that God is your refuge. No matter what you're going through in life, God is constant, he is there, and he knows you. So that's the direction we're going. So let's start with this first one then, the tricky one. How do we make sense of tricky themes? And as I've already said, at first glance, you could think, great, I'm going to go and live a a chance-free, prosperous life. As a Christian, I've got it very, very good. Andrew Wilson, who's part of the leadership team at King's Church in London, says this about this psalm, which I think is really helpful. He says, if we take this reading of the psalm at face value, we can almost think we have an immunity passport that God gives us. So the day that you are saved, here you go, here's your passport, go and be free, nothing's ever going to come close to you, nothing's going to touch you, your life is going to be blessed, and it's going to be prosperous. And of course, that's not the experience that I'm sure we all have in this room. But it says, doesn't it, verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. That sounds pretty sure to me that I'm going to be all right. And I think these references, I was having to think about this, my mind goes straight 
to my favorite films. You may think of a Lord of the Rings, you may think of a battle scene, you may think of a Star Wars, where the main character lives a charmed life all the way through. And this actually really frustrates me about films. When you have the main characters, they're surrounded by enemies, and you think, right, this is game over. Oh, we've only been watching half an hour. How are they going to get out of this one and re-script it? But for some reason, only one enemy attacks at a time. So they may be encircled, but actually all you see on the screen is one enemy come towards, they fight them off, then the next. And you just think, if you guys rush this main character, that's it. And he's not going to stand a chance, but they never do that. And the same, in, I think, about Star Wars. Stormtroopers are useless, and actually they serve no purpose. Do they ever actually hit anything that they try and aim for? Which is why we have things like this. If you just put in Stormtrooper on Google, there's so many people laughing at them, there's so many jokes been made, so many memes been made, because they just don't hit anything. It's their job to not hit anything. And I just think some of us could read this psalm and actually think that we're going to live a charmed life like this. And actually the script that God has for us is that we are never going to be harmed, that we're always going to make it to the next chapter, to the next scene, and that enemies are just going to fire arrows all around us and it will never come close to us. Because it says, verse 10, another reinforcement apparently, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. Now the reality is that plenty of people around the world do actually believe in this interpretation. They do take it literally. And that's where we get the prosperity gospel from. Now you may not think about it, but prosperity gospel is, is everywhere. It's the belief that financial blessing and physical health is always the will of God for his people. So if you have enough faith in God... If you give enough money, if you sow enough, then God will bless you. You will prosper physically, your health will be fine, financially you're going to be blessed, you're going to live a great life. You're going to live the Psalm 91 life if you believe in that interpretation. There's plenty of people around the world who genuinely believe that interpretation. It says here, verse 9, If you say the Lord is my refuge and make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. So it does sound and seem that if I do something, if I put down a deposit, if I go to God, if I make a good decision, if I do something that impresses him, he will take me under his wings. There does seem to be this trade-off where I need to do something and then God will then do something in return. So the question is, how do we understand Psalm 91? Because this idea of this immunity passport this idea that life struggles don't apply to us is an incorrect reading of this passage. Why is that? Because it doesn't actually take into account the character of God, what we know about him, what the Bible actually testifies about him itself, and then what the Bible says about what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. Nowhere else does it say that you're going to live a blessed, charmed life because you've put your faith in Jesus. We could come up with 50 passages that say the exact opposite of that. That's what it means for us to be believers. So that simply cannot be the correct reading of Psalm 91. So how do we understand it then? Well, I'd like to put to you that Psalm 91, if we're reading it in its true context, is actually referring to God's promise. It is a promise, you're not wrong there, but it's a promise of his providence, which is our protection, rather than an immunity passport. And by providence, I mean God's authority and his care over all things, over all creation, all knowledge of us, his love for us, his incomplete sovereign rule and control over everything that happens. So Psalm 91 is a promise that nothing will happen to you as a child of God 
that is outside of his control or his purposes for your life. So it doesn't mean nothing's going to happen to you, but you have to then add on that's outside of his dominion and plan for your life. So I'm just going to let that sink for a minute because I'm aware that may not be the best news for you this morning. You might be thinking, okay, that doesn't quite sit well with me. I'm actually going through some really hard times at the moment. So now you're saying that God's in control of those things. Well, why would he do that? So I'm going to say it again. This is a promise of his providence as your protection. And he is, it's a promise that nothing will happen to you outside of his control or purposes for your life. Um, to help us just understand this better, I found this really helpful quote. So this is a, a Bible scholar um, called Zamani Kafang who writes about verse 10 in particular that's really troublesome. They say this, It does not mean that bad things cannot happen to the righteous people of God. What it does mean is that God is aware of what is happening and that those things that seem harmful to us can only happen with his permission and for his purposes. So ultimately, we know this already, we've spoken in the last few weeks, troubles will come, Gateway. Troubles will come to us as believers in Jesus. You need to understand that, we need to wrestle with that, we need to process that. And I think a really helpful example is to flick to um, the parable of the wise man who built his house upon the rock versus the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Again, this has been touched on in recent weeks, but I want to talk about something a little bit different with this. It's in Matthew 7, and I've got this up here so you can just see a little comparison. So, man builds his house upon the rock, man builds his house upon the sand. Notice what happens to them both. And I think we can so easily miss this. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. You think, yeah, 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 because that's the foolish person. No, it's repeated. Whether you've built your life on Jesus, the rock, or whether you build your life on stuff, on sand, on life, it says here that in many ways you're going to experience the same thing as the person next to you, your neighbor next door, the person that you struggle with at work, a family member, whoever it is. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against the wise person's house and the foolish person's house. I hadn't really noticed that before, before I actually took another look. Building your house on the rock does not mean the elements cease and that life becomes just a cruise for you, you and Jesus skipping along, holding hands. It doesn't work like that. Life is still tough. You're still going to get the rain come down. You're still going to get the flood water. You're still going to get the winds blowing you, but notice the difference. If you build your house upon the rock, the, rock, the house will not fall. It may be shaken, but it will not fall. So the correct reading of Psalm 91 is that if we trust in God, things are still going to come to us. It's still going to be turbulence, and there's still going to be pain. But ultimately, we have a foundation of the rock, and you will not be moved. That's the encouragement to you this morning. It's not that nothing's going to happen. It's that when it does, you have hope, and you can look at the rock who is Jesus. And ultimately, God has a plan for, for all of this. And I understand that we're all going through different things this morning. Some of this is going to be very sensitive to some people. Some people right now are going to be confused at what God's doing in their life. We can't see a plan. How could this be part of God's bigger purposes? I completely understand that we're all going through personal things at the moment. But the thing is, we cannot see on this side of eternity the plans of God necessarily. Because we're the created. He is the creator. That is how it's designed to be. We are not God. We do not have the mind of God. He has not given us that ability to be able to judge him by what he does, to tell him what to do. That is not our position. That is not our role. 
as being created. But God does know. And remember, I said to you a moment ago about the importance of us reading Scripture through other Scripture to help us get the right interpretation. So just on this topic, I understand it's, it's complex, but here are a couple of examples I think really help us. So the story of Joseph in Genesis 50 really speaks to this well. So Joseph, you'll have seen the play, um, the Technicolor Dreamcoats. This is Joseph who had a hard, hard life, but God's redeemed him. This is what he says at the end of the story to his brothers who had done so much harm to him. He said this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph was thrown in a well. Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph was accused of sexual assault. Joseph was thrown into prison. But God used all of these things for his greater purposes. Now, do you not think in the moment, Joseph at so many points thought, God, what is happening? How can this possibly work out in any way other than my death or my shame or me losing my family or my health? Think of all those things that happened to Joseph. But God was always sovereign over it all. And this is what I mean about the promise of God's providence. He was always in it. And ultimately, Joseph becomes one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And how the story arc comes round is that the same family that tried to kill him end up coming to him for help, and he ends up blessing them. So there's a beautiful story arc. But we could never get there on our own, could we? We couldn't read our own script and think, ah, okay, I see, God, what you're doing here, because we're so in it, and we just cannot comprehend. So most of these things we will not understand on this side of eternity, but that's okay. And we have examples like this to help us understand. Romans 8.28 is another great example. Paul in the New Testament writes this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So again, be encouraged by these verses. Don't be confused by them. God knows what you're going through this morning. It's not outside of his knowledge or his control. And our job of followers of Jesus, it says this so many times in Scripture, is to trust God, to abide in him, to seek refuge in him. He's got us. He knows. And ultimately, the victory is going to be his. And I just want to quickly mention the issue of healing because I think this is something that can be very tricky for us as the people of God when either we're facing physical sickness, we're praying for others who are not well, and we don't see the answer to prayer that we want to see. And again, we may read Psalm 91 and say, yeah, but God, you said you're going to protect me. You're going to hear my cry for help. You said that actually I wouldn't face harm or affliction if you read it that way. And I think... All of us have things we're waiting on at the moment, I'm sure, in prayer for God to heal. And there's many reasons that we see healing not happen in the Bible. Sometimes it's the faith of the person praying for healing. Sometimes it's the faith, lack of faith of the people who are praying for that person. Sometimes the reason that healing doesn't take place is because God's not finished yet using that suffering that, again, we cannot see to bring about his bigger purpose There are many times in the New Testament where he takes Paul, he takes a disciple on a journey that they wouldn't have chosen. It's a painful one. It's a thorn in the flesh, but God is using that for his bigger plan. He's not ready to take that thorn out. And so again, we have to trust, we have to let go and understand God's providence this morning. I'm waiting on things. I'm waiting for my niece. My niece was born with a a hole in one of the valves in her heart, and she's going to have surgery at the age of 11. And I'm here thinking, why would God allow that? In what world 
is it going to be played out in God's larger purposes for my niece to have to have heart surgery every few years from the age of 10? I cannot get that in my mind, how that would ever be for his glory. She's going to have to work through that. Why would God make me with a heart defect? We've all got things like this that we're battling through. But it's my sister's job, it's my job, it's the whole family's job who are praying for her to continue to pray in faith and to love Martha and for her to see that God loves her. But we may never get the answer to that. I, I don't know why that's happened. But it's something that I'm sure we've all got examples where we have that exact stress at the moment and we have to understand that this is an encouragement in Psalm 91 that he is our refuge and we can trust him for the things that we don't know. So just in summary, we cannot read that psalm as a blanket protection blessing from all harm ever hitting us with hardship. I know a lot of you know that. But actually, what, I, what we're going to see here is that the promise that God gives us is so much better than just getting an immunity passport. So much better than that. And to help us do this, we'll move on to point number two, which is looking at how we can misuse Scripture. And I just want to go a bit deeper on this, and I'm, I'm going to use the example from this psalm of verse 11, which is where Satan, the devil himself, actually quotes Scripture, but in an incorrect way in order to try and manipulate Jesus and show up a falsehood. So let's have a little look at that. So verse 11, the enemy takes that verse, and in Luke 4, 9 to 12, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan brings this card out of his pocket, and this is what he says. So this is Luke 4, 9 to 12. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So a couple of things to note here is that this statement is word for word taken by Satan from Psalm 91. I've put it there in the bold. So what he's done is he's not manipulated it. He's not changed the wording. What he's done is he's lifted it from what has already been said, and he's applied it here and said, hey, your book says this about you, Jesus, taking it literally, therefore, throw yourself down. He genuinely wants Jesus to believe that if he throws himself down from this height, then his angels will save him. And I think this is, this is so interesting because the enemy, as we know, he's so sly and he's so clever. So he's not silly enough to completely go against what God says and present it to you and me because he knows that actually if we're reading our Bible, if we're a follower of Jesus, then we will actually know a lie from a lie. But what he does is he takes something that appears true and he just twists it slightly. Think about Genesis when he's speaking to Eve. He doesn't say, God is not trustworthy, Eve, have this fruit. He doesn't completely go up against what God says he asks a question, a provocative question. Did God really say, and he uses again words of truth that were used about the tree, but he changes it, he distorts it in a way that can actually fool us and con us into thinking, oh yeah, that does sound actually a lot like what God said. It's such clever tactics. And I think we need to be careful of this in that how the enemy uses scripture to speak to us but also in the way that we interpret scripture and can so easily get it wrong ourselves. And this is vital for something like Psalm 91 that's tricky to read. So what is Satan's game plan here? Well, Tim Keller, who's late pastor and, and author in the States, he says it like this. In effect, the, um, Satan is saying this. He says, don't go to the cross. Don't suffer. If God really loves you, he wouldn't let you suffer. 
You see how brilliant the devil is? If he can get a Christian to believe that God will not let any big bad things happen to you, if you believe that, and trust me, bad things will happen to you, then you're going to pull back from God. So the danger is, if you misinterpret scripture, if you take Psalm 91 out of its original context and you actually wear that as a badge of honor, that you have this immunity passport to go through life, you're doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. Because guess what? In two days' time, someone may get hit by a car. In two days' time, you may get fired from your job. There's going to be a health scare in your family. And instantly, you're going to say, hang on a minute, I was promised something in Psalm 91. Okay, God's gone back on his word there. Therefore, he's not trustworthy. Therefore, I'm going to pull back from him. So it causes doubt, and that is what the enemy is always trying to do, just by lies, trying to see doubt in our hearts. So it's something we need to be awake to, but I love how Jesus um, responds to this, and this is how we need to combat this. So how do, we avoid, how do we avoid wrongly interpreting Scripture? We do what Jesus did. Notice that last verse there. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now Jesus' words there are harking back to Deuteronomy, So he's borrowed, I love this, Satan has used something from the Old Testament, brought it into the New, and distorted it. Jesus then takes something from the Old Testament, brings it into the New to correct the lie that the enemy has told. And I love that. And it shows for us how Jesus has called out the false interpretation by then using another part of the Bible to correct it, to correct that lack of theology and judgment. And that's what we were saying earlier. In our Bible reading, I don't know if you guys are doing bread in the mornings, we're doing that as as Gateway Church. If you're doing your own Bible routine, that's great. But you always need to think, if I'm reading something that actually I know does not line up with the rest of Scripture, if I'm taking something from this that I know Jesus has said something different on, or the psalmist has, or one of the disciples has, whether Paul said this or Moses, we need to align ourselves with what the Word says, not try and fit the Word into our lens and how we want the text to speak to us that day. Because it's so easy to do that, for us to go to the Bible, we want to read something into the text, and so we gladly do that. We see that all the time in the world at the moment. People are taking verses so that they will fit their narrative with no concern for the overall arch of the Bible, or actually, no, Jesus said this, actually, in the New Testament, if you look at it, or actually in the Old Testament, this was said. People aren't concerned with that. So as you read our Bibles, we should always allow the text to speak for itself. It sounds obvious, but it's something that we can severely lack. And this is a trivial example, but I thought this might be helpful. So in the last few years, I've done quite a lot of sports journalism. I've spoken to a lot of Christian athletes about their faith, about their sport. And quite often when we're on um, in our interviews, we just start chatting about the Bible or their favorite worship songs or their routines. And I'll tell you what, the amount of times that it comes across to me that these are top sports athletes with massive followings, and you think they, they know what they're doing here, they're a disciple of Jesus, but they will quote Philippians 4.13. And if you look, you'll see it on a lot of, these are huge megastar sports stars. You'll see Philippians 4.13 etched into their boots, on their headbands. They'll have it on all their social media profiles. So this here behind me, you can kind of see it clearly. So this is Carl Anthony Towns and Steph Curry. So they're two of the most famous players, American players in the NBA. So that's the National Basketball Association. These guys have huge followings. They both are Christians. And look what verse they've put on their bios. It's Philippians 4.13. 
Now, what I'm not saying is that every person who ever quotes that verse clearly doesn't know what it actually means. But there's a pattern here that lots of people within the sports world take that verse and pop it on whatever they want to in order to say a certain message, which I'm not sure they've 100% thought through. So the verse, Philippians 4.13, says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And for a lot of them, and the answers I get back in interviews, what they think that means for them is that on the court or on the football pitch or in the swimming pool or on the track, that they can do all things in terms of their performance, their success, because God will give them strength to do so. So I'm not saying I don't know the hearts of these guys, but I've spoken to a lot of guys like them, and whenever they quote that verse, I ask them what that means, and they genuinely think that this means that God will elevate their levels above all the others on the court. Well, what if there's five Christians on the team? That's an interesting question. So that they can score a hat-trick, or they can break the three-point record, or they can win Wimbledon, or get an Olympic gold medal. They genuinely think, I've got God, therefore, he will give me strength to do all things. But that is not the context that Paul wrote this verse in. If you actually look at the chapter and go and read that, Paul did not mean that God will give you and I the ability to elevate our levels so that we can win Wimbledon. Now, if anyone wants to go and do that, amazing. And if you're a Christian and we have success in sport or music or business, whatever it is, and we're a Christian, we give God thanks. That's great. That's legitimate. I'm not saying you can't achieve and say that it was down to God. But this passage does not mean what lots of people assume it means. The actual context was that Paul was living in a complete back and forth contrast of being being hungry and then being full, being in lack and then being provided for. He was in the middle of circumstances that were knocking him all over the place. And he was saying, but in all this, God is my strength. He is all I need. That's what he was saying. He wasn't actually saying that because I have God, I can go and preach to a million people and see them saved like Billy Graham. He wasn't saying that. That's not the context of the passage. So that's just, it could be a trivial example, but I think it's so easy for us to take a verse and for that to become like wildfire. And genuinely, if you keep your eye out for that verse, people quote it all over the place, especially um, in Hollywood, especially in sports. The celebrities love using that, that verse. So I'd just like to quickly finish by coming back to almost the, the finishing point of this message, which is how God really is our refuge. Because ultimately, we are supposed to read Psalm 91 and to look forward to the promise of Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus did not give in to Satan's temptation. We've just looked at the wilderness episode, Jesus was tempted. But thankfully for us, Jesus did not give in. And Jesus ended up going to the cross, defeating Satan, sin and death, once and for all. Have a look at verse 13. It says, You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Which two animals in the Bible are most used to illustrate Satan? The lion, he's like a roaring lion waiting to devour you, and the serpent, which obviously we know very well. Those are the two things that are used to describe the devil. And Andrew Wilson, again, who's done a lot of great work on Psalm 91, he says that from this verse, there's an amazing parallel between the Lion of Judah, we sing this song, Lion of Judah, that is Jesus, who is victorious over the Lion of Hell. So it gives you this amazing picture of a, a battle of two lines. You have the line of Judah, the line of hell. And what Andrew says is that at the cross, 
the Lion of Judah mauled and killed the Lion of Hell for us. And the beauty about this is that when it says, you will tread on the Lion and the Cobra, you and I have trodden on the Lion and the Cobra. You and I have trampled the Great Lion and the Serpent because we are now in Christ. So what he has done for us and won for us, we have now effectively done that as well. So what an amazing encouragement that life throws us all kind of curveballs, so many things going on this morning, but ultimately Jesus has the victory over the lion and the cobra. He has done it for us. Verse 15, he has answered us and delivered us. That's what Jesus has done. He may not have answered you in the way that you would like it. It may have not been directly in your face. It may have not been an audible voice. You may not see the traces of what God has done, but he has answered your call. He has died on the cross for you. He has given you salvation so that now the worst thing in this life that can happen to us is we just go through a door and we pass to be with Jesus for eternity. So yes, life is hard, but ultimately this is now not the end. The worst thing that can happen is that your life ends and then you go and be with Jesus for eternity. That's now the lens that we can look at this psalm which is so much better, so much more powerful than a reading of, right, here's your immunity for this life, off you go, have fun. Would you rather have an immunity passport for this life and that's it? Or would you rather have the life you have now, but you know that you now have a path to eternal life with Jesus because of what he's done for you? I think I know which one I would rather have. And I simply have to finish by just mentioning this description of verse 4, which says that we are covered by God's feathers and his wings and what this actually means for us as the children of God. And for this, to finish, I'd like to bring in the British icon that is Sir David Attenborough. Quite naturally, nice smooth transition. John's happy with that. He's a big fan of David Attenborough. Um, so David Attenborough is an absolute legend, and I, I love him. Prisca and I quite often will go home and we'll binge a whole load of David Attenborough. I think it's going to be awful when he's not with us anymore, because think about the, the person who's got to follow David Attenborough, And I'm pretty sure most of us are already turning off to all those other documentaries because his voice, his insight, just his longevity is amazing. And I can't believe that this guy's not a believer after all the things that he's seen. But hey, that's for another preach. But in this documentary, birds feature heavily. So there's always David hanging around with a bird and he's always having a look, telling us something really profound They have so much content around, here's the life of birds, and here's their young, and here's the predator, and here we are with the penguins, and here's this. Birds are always not too far away. And as soon as I read this psalm, Psalm 91, I'm always taken to this psalm. And I think about those camera crews that zoom in. It's amazing that some people actually are on the ground in these climates taking um, all this footage. And they zoom in, and the amount of times you may have seen it where you have a bird, normally a penguin or in horrible, harsh conditions, and then they have their baby, their chick, almost they're sat on their offspring, completely covered, completely warm, the baby's flopping about all over the place, and you think, yeah, that's not going to last long, but then it's kind of kicked back underneath the mother, and it's completely secure, it's completely safe, and that is the image that I always think of when I'm reading this, and when I'm thinking, I always go to David Attenborough, which is very strange, But, but ultimately... I think this is, such a, this is the picture that, that God uses when he thinks about his relationship with us. That it's, a, again, it's a complete care. It's an overarching, I've got you. All you need to do is come to me and you can rest underneath my wings. There's no safer place to be. And in the documentaries, there's always maybe an Arctic fox knocking about or there's always something come to try and take the chicks. There's always a wind chill when it's minus 50 and you see the, the babies getting cold. 
again, the elements don't stop for us. It's not a picture of actually we're in a protected dome and nothing will ever touch us. But there is no safer place to be than being under the wings, under the protector of Jesus. There is simply nowhere else to be. So it may not look like a chanceless life for us. It may not be what you and I would choose when we walk out this door this week, facing all the things that you're going through. But this is our God. This is our God. In the bigger narrative of existence, God has got you. He has won salvation for you. He's died on the cross so that you now have eternity with him. So whatever this life is doing to you at the moment, put it into perspective. These are short years. Think about what has been won for you. And that in these short years, God doesn't just leave us to get on with it. I'll see you on the other side. He's there with us in it. He is our refuge. And he invites you this morning, come to me. So that's what we're going to do in a moment. We'd love to leave space for people to actually come to him, to say, do you know what? I've been standing out on my own, and it's cold, and I feel vulnerable, and I feel like I'm getting attacked left, right, and center. Well, the invitation is there. Draw near to God this morning. This is a psalm that we can cling to, we can find such joy in, and I know why Prisca loves this psalm, because it's just full of richness and truth. I'm sure a lot of you do as well. It's so much more than just nice poetry. It's powerful because our God is so good. So I'm aware our lives are messy. We've already touched on that. The Bible tells us to expect as much. Think of all the the major players in the Bible. Their lives are not pretty. Their lives are not necessarily fun. But God uses them in amazing ways. And they have a joy that other people do not have despite what's going on in life. And we can have the same. So... As the the band comes up in a moment, we are going to take communion shortly, but I'd love for us to just leave a little bit of space for prayer, that when we're singing these songs, we're taking communion. If you know this morning, you're one of two camps, either you, like I've said, you need to come in for refuge this morning, you need to come under God's feathers once again because you've stood off him, then there'll be an option for you to come and be prayed for. And secondly, if you've got feelings of resentment or disappointment towards God this morning, maybe he's not answered that prayer. Maybe you feel like Psalm 91 does not apply to how you feel God's treated you in your life. The reality of God's promises don't match your reality. Well, the issue is not with God. It's with us and our understanding of him. So let's give over our disappointments to him. Remember his goodness. Remember his promises in Psalm 91 that are valid and true. And we'd love to pray for you this morning that you would know truth, that you would know God's love afresh. And so those two groups, love you to, love you to come up and just get prayer. Um, we'll have some people either side who can just pray for you as we, as we worship. Father, thank you so much for your words. Thank you for this psalm that although we have to dig and sometimes we have to really work hard to find the truth and the meaning, thank you that it's always there and it's always richer than we can ever imagine. Thank you for the truth you've given us this morning. You are such a good father. You're such a loving savior. Thank you that this life is not the end. Thank you that we have an eternal hope in you. You've won salvation on the cross, that you have stamped on the head of the serpent, you've trampled the lion, and that we stand with you, children of God, and you've got us. You're our refuge in this life. Amen.